Reverend Dash. Yes, sir. It's a pleasure finally meeting you. Here I am. Promoter extraordinaire, musical producer extraordinaire. You've worked with the likes of Regina Bell, Roberta Flack, James Brown, Luther Vandross, and the list goes on. And you're a Canadian from Montreal. Yeah. You grew up in St. Henry. Yes, sir. Hung on a little burgundy. That's right. Yeah. Talk to us about the music in your household. How did it influence you? Well, my father was loved music. And uh, he worked on a railroad. And when he would come home on his layover, he would play his 78s. He had a lot of calypso music and okay. big bands. And so he played it constantly when he was home. Okay. And me as a teenager and around would have no choice but to listen to it. Okay. And I began to enjoy it and wanted to be like one of the people that I'd heard singing or whatever it was. But and he had also mentioned to me that um, Oscar Peterson used to come hang out at your house? Well, Oscar Peterson was uh, was uh, trying to get close to my sister, my eldest sister. What do you mean, trying to get close? What do you mean? Well, to be, he, he had a crush on her, <laughs> yeah, okay. you, you know, All right. at that day, back in the day. Okay. And we had a piano at the house, so he would come by okay. to court my sister and he would sometimes play the piano, of course. You know, that was his tool to win over of the whole, whole household. Okay. And then I would say to him as a youngster, I'd say, can I sing with you? And he would say, what do you want to sing? And I'd say, play the blues and B-flat, you know. Okay. And he would play something and I would sing. Of course, I didn't have a real good voice to sing, but he wasn't going to say no. You know, he had to win me over, too, as a brother of... Uh, my sister, who he was really working on. So, okay. so that was just something I mentioned since he got so big. You know, wow, whatever. Yeah. I tell my friends, even my friends, and say, oh, you know, back in the day, I, I sang with Oscar Peterson. You know? <laughs> now, what year was this around? Oh, I couldn't really tell you. <laughs> I really, <laughs> that far back? I, that been? far back, I couldn't really. It has to be, I would have to say, that would be a good 60, 70 years ago. Wow. Yeah. You're revealing your age, Merv. Well, I, I don't care. It is what it is. How old are you, Merv? You look good. How old are you? I'm 86. Oh. Now, I want you to bring us back to your neighborhood. Describe us how St. Henry was. What was the make of St. Henry back then? Well, when I lived in St. Henry, uh, actually, um, there were about there were just about three black families in that we knew. There wow. were the Rockheads on Convent. We were on the port. Okay. The S's on and on uh, Agnes, and the Beards on, um, what was that, Irene Street. Okay. And there was a park there, and okay. that's what it is. I went okay. to St. Thomas Aquinas School, okay. which was on uh, Convent Street. Okay. Talk to us about the makeup of Little Burgundy, because you also were part of Union United Church, yeah. the Negro Community Center. Yeah. Tell us about the makeup of Little Burgundy. Well, we had a little community that was there. We okay. had our weekly dances. Okay. We had dances at the Negro Community Center, and we had dances at the UNIA. From the community okay. of now, all, you know, the black kids and whatever, where we would go out on a Saturday okay. and they'd play records most of the time and we'd have our little girlfriends and come and dance and whatever. And that was, the, you know, for what we did on the Saturday night or something like that, you know. And it was free, no cost. We went and we all danced and did what we had to do. Okay. What was minimum wage back then? Oh, I don't know, 25 cents an hour or Ooh. something like that. Couldn't get me working for that much. Well, you, listen, you could have French fries, Coke, 
Mm-hmm. And it's something else for a quarter. Wow. I know my father used to send me to the store to buy him cigarettes that cost 37 cents. Come on, Merv. That's right. And I better bring home that. He'd give me two quarters, and I better bring home that 13 cents. <laughs> it was don't drop a penny and forget about it. You pick up everything. You bring back 13 cents. Now, when I had my kids and I sent them to the store okay. to buy some, I got to give them a tip. Yeah. It's changed now. But back in my father's day, you bring that back. And then we had different things. Okay. Go to the corner. Then nobody asked me about my age when I bought him cigarettes. Okay. Nobody asked me about my age when I go a quarter beer, being a big old beer. Go get me a quarter beer. Okay, Dad. Boom. Go and give me. You were a kid doing this. I was a kid doing it. Okay. Nobody said, "Where's your ID?" Okay. There was no such thing as ID. Okay. You know, you just see how things grow, and again, how they change. You know. But I want you to take us back to your father working on a railroad. Yes. Because back then working on a railroad was very important to black men, right? Well, they knew you could go right there and get a job. Yes. There was no problem to go to, to, if you wanted to work and you were a black man, you went right to the railroad and you got a job. So were black people able to get other jobs other than the railroad? No, not really. Not until later years. Well, one of the things that they found with a lot of American uh, people who came here, musicians and porters that stayed in Canada and Montreal, they did not have a social prejudice. Okay. They were accepted by the whites and, you know, the French Canadians and what. Why is they, that? Why? I don't know why. They were readily accepted. Okay. But economically, there was the prejudice. They couldn't get those jobs. Okay. But they could go into various families. They liked it. You know, there was a social. And don't forget, Jackie Robinson and these people grew up here to be to be where they came from, okay. which started in there in Quebec and the things like that. So there was a social prejudice in the U.S. Oh, in you, yes, yes. My, like in my father's day, when he would go on walking the street in certain uh, cities and states, when he traveled, he would tell us the stories. Okay. He'd have somebody walking on the sidewalk. He had to get off the sidewalk and walk on the street and let them walk by if there were, you know, a few white men and stuff like that. Because at that time, the Ku Klux Klan was very active back there in the day. So you had to be careful about all of that stuff. Well, that didn't exist here. Okay. You were you were accepted socially. In Quebec. But Montreal. economically Montreal. was the problem. Okay. I want you to take us to when Little Burgundy became the hot spot for urban music. How did that become? Why was Burgundy so hot? Why were so many musicians coming in and out of Little Burgundy and playing in Little Burgundy? Well, it had to do with about three or four of of us innovators that were there. Okay. There was Rockhead's Paradise at that time. Okay. Who brought in a lot of talent. And it was was well sponsored, meaning it was well attended. Yes. And it grew. Very big, major artists came to Montreal. They used to call it the North. Give us some names. Duke Ellington. Wow. Count Basie. Billy Eckstein, I saw him. They had the Café de l'Est, the Café du Nord, Montmartre. They had all of these, and they had major shows, and the Esquire Show Bar, Bo Diddley, you name them. They all came, and all were supported. I brought James Brown back in the day, 1960-something, might have been a 68 or somewhere around there. I brought him to the Paul Sovi Arena. In the East End? In the East End. Okay. And... uh, Why not the Bell Center? Pardon me? Why not the Montreal Forum? Why can't you bring him to the Montreal Forum? I couldn't. Why I not? brought... Well, they didn't want... <laughs> because I wasn't the right complexion. 
at that time. So that time... I went to I went to rent to Montreal for him and they refused me. Okay. I had a white friend of mine who went and rented it for me and we became partners. Okay. And I brought Isaac Hayes into the Montreal Forum. What year is this when you brought Isaac oh Hayes? Oh my God, you keep asking me about what year it was. Well, to say your age, how old are you? I so guess I would have to say I would be about maybe 30. Okay. James Brown was very popular here with the French-speaking people. What, was it because he was playing on TV? No, it was because he didn't have no lyrics to his songs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they could understand that. He had a big, powerful band. Okay. And if you notice or you listen back to, even in the story, mm -hmm. James Brown's first record was Please, Please, Please. Okay, how'd that go? Baby, please don't go because you know I love you so. Okay. That is the entire lyric of James Brown's first big hit record. Wow. And you know it. Baby, please don't go. And then the rest was... Because you know I love you so. Okay. And fall on your knees and put the cape on him and scream. <laughs> so the French-speaking people could understand that. So they could identify with that. As opposed to another type of artist might come and sing a heavy-laden song of love or that maybe they couldn't understand. But they could understand James Brown, no problem. So when you brought James Brown, how old were you around? I guess I would say I was about 35 and I filled a joint up with Sold him. out. Sold out. Sold so you, out. So you made some money. I did. That's good. You want to know when I lost some? Yeah, let me tell me when you lost some. I brought Joe Tex in after James Brown. Okay, no, Joe Tex was hot back then, Back right? in the States, he had a, a record called Skinny Legs and All. Okay. And I figured, well, I'm coming back with Joe Tex. He was, no, they used to call him Soul Brother Number Two. Okay, tell us what happened, Merv. With Joe Tex? Yeah, tell us what happened. Well, when I, when I there was nobody there. <laughs> there was nobody there. And not only that, Joe Tex was hooked up to, um, I think some people in Black Power or whatever. Okay. It is. They were very rough on me, too. Okay, who's they? You can say they're rough. His gang, his posse. Okay. He had a posse. Okay. You know, this, you didn't do enough advertising. They blamed me for everything. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't spend it enough much money. on a different market. Because they were mad because there wasn't a lot of people. Okay. Well, they were used to having a lot of people because, don't forget, in America, which is one of the reasons where I left because I could do much better. Yes. Because... You know, I'm dealing, when I'm in America dealing music, I'm working to about 60, 70 million black people, yeah, which easier. is more than twice the population of Canada. Wow. So they can understand what I'm doing. Here where the, the, where, where the population is dense, it's not as heavy, then the black artists, unless some people follow them closely, okay. are not going to get the attendance, so before, like they should do. So you opened up your own club. Was that before you left for America or you left for America first? No, I opened up my own club before I left for America. So let's America. talk about you opening up your club. Talk to us about your club. Well, I start, I wanted a club. Okay. I worked also on the railroad, saved my money, and since I couldn't sing or whatever it is, I said, well, I want to have a, I want to get involved in the music industry, okay. so I'll have a club. Tell the people the name of your club. The name, Merv Soul City. There you go, let that, them know, let them know. Oh, I let them know. I let, well, what had happened, mm -hmm. I tried to get a license for the club. Okay. I had Reverend S. Okay. at that time give me a... He was a Reverend at Union United he, back then, right? 
Yes. Okay. I had my principal from the school. Okay. I had pretty good references okay. to go to City Hall and the various places to get a license. I had the, the, all of the things that I wanted and the address and whatnot. And I was refused. A month later, it was another club that the Italian gangsters had gotten. Yes. So they knew I wanted to get there, so they decided if that they would rent me the downstairs because they had the license. Okay. I said, okay. And the rent was exorbitant back in the day. I had to pay $750 a week to have the club. Yeah. I took it on. And I was successful with it because I would go to New York and Philadelphia and I would get these red hot bands and some from the Esquires. So my club was always filled. So you going to New York? No, people Philly. thought that I was making a lot of money. Okay. But if I generated about maybe a thousand dollars a week, okay. I had to give up about seven fifty to the rent. You yeah. know what I mean? So it was very active, and I and I had it for three years. But then I got tired of paying the big rent mm. and working very hard and seeing the small money. So I said, I got to get out of here and go to America. So finally, uh, when my lease was up, I didn't mind. I left, okay. you know, because the city was turning around with regard to music. And why you talk to, talk to us about that? Then it became topless. Now came into the situation. Yeah. So how did topless become popular in Montreal? Why was it such a major factor in Montreal? Pop, topless became topless because they wanted to see tits. <laughs> That's why it came. I popular. know that, but why? Did, why was it the end of the live clubs, the live big bands? Because the guys would go, men would go into topless clubs. Okay. Just to look and examine the women. Okay. You know, they would say to me, Mervyn, why don't you go topless? I said, no, I'm not going topless. That's not entertainment to me. You know, I've never went to a top. I never was for that or going to a girly bar. Okay. So how old were you when the topless clubs started penetrating to the market? I guess I was close to, uh, I guess I was my 35, 36, okay, 7, so, 38. Okay, so you start, you're still young, you still had energy. Yeah. And then that's when you decided, after your lease was up, to go to the U.S. Y yes, I decided that I, uh, it wasn't happening the way. I still had my love for music. Yes. Let's talk about the U.S., about you going to When the I US. went to the U.S., my first job was with Stax Records. Now, to let people know, Stax Records was the biggest record label after Motown. Yes, it was a big black label. That's okay. where I met Isaac Hayes. Okay. Everybody on that label was talented. Okay. And I was a special projects manager there, okay. which is... I didn't, really, uh, uh, I didn't uh, really have much to do but go to record stores and examine okay. to see if their product was on display. Okay, so now... Explain to us how they set you up with the car. Oh, they set me up right away. I got a Cadillac, right? Cadillac. Had, had so you're rolling a Cadillac now. I had to have you a left Montreal, you in the Cadillac now. Yeah, I got a Cadillac. You've blown it up right yeah. now. As soon as I got there, I said, hey, go get the car. Go rent a car. Okay. I said, whatever. And they, 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 were, they emphasized, get a Cadillac. Okay. But eventually, then one day, I had gotten a call, and it was Roberta Flack on the phone. Wow. Now, let people know who Roberta Flack was and how big she was at she that time. She was an international superstar. Okay. I was knocked out when she called me. 
I could hear that voice that I've heard on records, you know. Okay. She had a big song, Killing Me Softly. Wow. Sold about two or three million singles at that time. Okay. And she called me and she said, I've heard good things about you. And uh, uh, I would like for you to join my team. And she said, when can you come? I'd like to meet you. And I said, yesterday. <laughs> she said, well, you call this number. These are my accountants and they will arrange for your transportation and so on and so forth. Well, I got off the phone with her and I called her accountants. They told me we'll get me the ticket and so on and so forth and blah, 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 blah. So I got on, I got the ticket, went to the airport, I flew in. And it was the very first time when I landed in Kennedy Airport, I saw this sign that said Bourbon Dash and it was a limo driver. Wow. And I had never been in a limo before. You know, I was in Montreal and I said, my God, what is going on here? How old are you about this at this time? I guess I was now about 40. Okay. Early 40. So you're still young, still got energy? Yeah, I said, I still have energy now. Oh yeah? Watch right. yourself. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw this, uh, this, uh, this limo, I said, my God, what is this? You're Mervyn Dash? Yes. I'm instructed to take you to this loft Mr. Roberta Flack Loft, and uh, where's your bags, and so on and so forth, and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. I said, wow. So he took me to the loft. Mm -hmm. I went into the loft, I saw a big baby grand piano. Okay. And I saw uh, plaques, of, so many plaques, best of this and kill me. I said, oh my God, this you is were, it. You were not. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm there. So I said, she's. I'm managing an international superstar. This is something. They won't believe me back home about this. So she finally called me. And she said to me, um, I want you to go to William Morris okay. and introduce yourself to the agent. William Morris is my agent. Okay. Let them know who you are. And what about... So, so William Morris is a talent agency in the U.S. William Morris is the biggest agency in the world. Okay. They are on 32nd floor on Park Avenue or something like that, if I remember. So I went there to William Morris and I met this guy, Andy Klein. I'll never forget his name, and that's a lot of years ago. I said, I'm Mervyn Dash. I'm Roberta Flack's new manager. And I'm here to uh, introduce myself. Okay. So any kind of concerts or events that you have for her... You can go through me. You can, go, you can come through me. Okay. I'm there. Okay. And I got a call okay. from the agency. Mervyn, and yeah, hi, how you doing? I have a date for Roberta. And it's 12,500. And we want her to go to sing the national anthem at the Kentucky Derby. And that's, that's the gratuities. Okay. I said to myself, whoa, you know, you will have first class accommodation and travel for you and her. This is big money back then. Yes, at that time. So I said, gee whiz, I'm going to go and I'm going to be able to watch the Kentucky Derby. My God, this is really the thing. Call my friends back here in Montreal. I said, man, I'm going to go to the Kentucky Derby, blah, blah, blah. So about three or four days before the event or before we were ready to go, she called me and she said, I want you to scratch that Kentucky Derby. But she had agreed to do it. Yes. I said, why, what's the matter? Are you mm -hmm. sick? Mm -hmm. No, no, I don't think I'm gonna have a God. 
I said, yeah, but Roberta, everything is in motion for you. <laughs> so you can you do it? Uh, uh, William Morrison, they're, they're out there. They're this, they're expecting you. They're doing advertising. You, you, can, you just tell them I don't want to do it. I can't do it. So I said, well, what the heck am I going to tell them? Tell them that I was riding in a cab and the cab had an accident and I wrenched my neck and I can't sing. She told you to say this? Yes. And that's what I said. Then when I went to, up to Willie Morris, I said, we can't do it. So they cursed me out. I said, how you mean? You know, why you tell us so late? What are you? Then they apologized to me after because now we got to get somebody to replace her. And we said, you're at the 11th hour. How come you, how come you didn't? I said, this only happened recently. Yeah, yeah, we know it happened. It seems like that was what they were used to. Okay. So that was one incident. Another incident was when we went to the time you're talking about when I almost got killed. Yeah, tell us about that time. Uh, well, there's an item before that. The phone call. The phone call that I got from Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. Called Elizabeth, you. The, the actress. No, no, she didn't call me. Her assistant called me first. Okay. And she said, hello, I'm so-and-so. Now, this time, Elizabeth Taylor is, is major. Biggest artist, biggest uh, actress in the world. Wow. Biggest beautiful thing. She said, I'm calling for Elizabeth Taylor. She's getting married to this politician whose name was Warner something. Mm -hmm. He's still around, this politician. And she said, you know, Roberta Flack is one of Elizabeth's favorite singers. And she would like her to sing at this wedding. Uh, I think the song was First Time I've Ever Saw Your Face. She wanted her to sing that. Okay. And... uh, we would supply first-class transportation and accommodations. And my next question was, is there any... Uh, Payola, I gotta pay. Yeah, you know, she said, no, this is uh, whatever it is, and blah, blah, blah. So I sat and I studied it for a while, and I said to myself, this is good. I'll be happy to get there. So I said to Roberta, I said, look, this is a big event first-class transportation and accommodation. She said, what's the compensation? I said, there's no compensation. She said, there's no compensation? There's no Roberta. I said, Roberta, you got to do it. This is the biggest actress in the world. You never know. She might get your music in a movie. You know me. I'll try and solicit something. I'll get something going. I'll even try to get it in a movie. Come on, come on. You got to do this. No money, no honey. We would not move. I said, my God, what am I going to do? Anyway, I get a call again okay. from the assistant. assistant. Okay. I said to her, well, we're unable to do this due to the fact that we have a contract okay. with another promoter that is less than 120 miles away from the venue, okay. and we are forbidden to do any appearances. So you're lying again for her? Yeah, well, I'm trying to get out of this. She's saying, no, I'm trying to get out gracefully. So she said, okay, what are we looking at? Meanwhile, the guy she's marrying is a senator, okay. big-time guy. She calls me again, third time. You do not have to worry about any contracts that you have. We have it all arranged. There will be no lawsuits. There will be nothing. <laughs> if you perform over there, you can... So don't worry. Feel free to come and see what you got to do. Okay. 
I said, okay, I'll let's see what I can do. I went back to Roberta, tried to convince No, I'm not doing it. Stop bothering me. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm at home now, and the phone rings. Boop. I said, hi, Murphy. I said, hello. This is Elizabeth. Wow. I said to myself, damn it. <laughs> this is the voice that I hear and been watching on my movies and this and Cleopatra. I said, hi. I'm sweating, and I ain't doing nothing but sitting down. My hands are sweating, my face is sweating. I said, yes, hi, how are you, blah, blah, blah. Thank you for all that you're doing, and we look forward to seeing you at the thing. Is everything uh, okay, with blah, blah, blah? I said, yes, everything is fine. Live through your teeth. I said, yeah, everything is fine. We, we look forward to seeing you there. Good, I can't wait. I'm very anxious to meet you. I don't know what was prompting me to say all of this stuff when the girl is telling me no, but I couldn't say no to this Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. So finally I said to myself, I got to clear this up. And it hit me, you know, like you see in a comic book where a light bulb goes over your head. I call her up. Call who up? Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. I didn't get her. I got her assistant. I said, hi, this is Mervyn. They now knew me, half a dozen calls from the from the from the assistant and one from Elizabeth, just one from Elizabeth. I said, I got some bad news for you. Mm -hmm. Line three uh, I would like again. to, I don't, you know, <laughs> could I speak to Elizabeth? She said, no, she's Elizabeth is on location in some place out in Africa, somewhere. Okay. On location doing a movie. I said, oh, she said, what is it? I said, Roberta was in a car accident. She was in a taxi, had an accident. And she wrenched her neck and hurt her arm. So unfortunately, we would not be able to perform. And then I said to myself, I was giving myself kudos because I said, she had given me that excuse for the Kentucky Derby. And I didn't think of nothing else. And, that, and of course, I had to say the arm because she would play the piano in, in the company herself okay. and whatever. We're very sorry to hear that. Oh, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay. Elizabeth is on location. She obviously got the vacation, uh, got the mess. I'm out of hot water. It's all cleared up. I figure it's all over. About a few days later, I met because I used to work at the Dakota, where it was, which was a big, big uh, loft that Roberta had had there, and she had her office in the back, and that's where I worked. Okay. And the, the uh, doorbell rang. The guy came in, knocked on the door, and there was a wreath of flowers about this big like you would have on a funeral box. Okay. All these flowers, I don't know, cost three, four hundred dollars. And I said, gee whiz, look at this. Then I picked up the card and it said, get well, much love, Elizabeth. Wow. Written on the card. So I said, by now this time, Roberta's coming. Oh, that's pretty. Where'd that come from? I started to say, a fan. Mm -hmm. But as I got ready to, I got nervousness, the card dropped from my hand and it fell on the floor. And she picked it up, she read it. So how did this come about? I said, well, I told her that you had a accident in the cab and you weren't able to do it. Oh, good work, Murphy, good thinking. And I said, oh, well, good. <laughs> so now everybody's happy. She got the flowers, I'm, I'm off the I still wanted to go and do that. But that was one of the things in dealing with Roberta that was difficult. 
We went to Abu Dhabi, the Middle East. Okay. And uh, that at, what, at that time, they had a lot of money. They had the oil money. Okay. They had Cadillacs on a chrome. Where was chrome? Was gold. Wow. Or copper, whatever. It looked like gold. You know, sand and whatever. They, had, they hired Roberta to, to go there. And we went there, and it, it was like... One of the strangest situations that I've ever been in, okay. because strange and scariest. So they said uh, we would like to have her perform okay. in Kuwait. What would that cost? I said that'll be fifty thousand dollars. They said we wanted her to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Well, that, that's big money, fifty thousand back and then. And they said no problem, just like that. Fifty thousand American. Yeah. Oh, it was a. I said, well, that would be fifty thousand per night. No problem. Wow. I said, and there will also be a ten percent for the agent, which was me. Okay. They sent the money to her bank. Gave them the information. One hundred fifty. Mm. They sent fifteen thousand to my bank. Mm -hmm. Then, about a day later, because we were there, whatever. Roberta said, you know what? I said, what? I, said, I don't think I can do this Q8. <laughs> I said, what? She said, no, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> I said, why? What's the problem? Your throat? You got problem. She said, you know, to tell you the truth, I miss Morgan. Who's Morgan? A little dog about that big. I said, you're serious? I said, don't you know what I went through with these people, prayed with them, this and that, and got all the money? I said, hell with Morgan. We deal with Morgan when we get back to New York. No, I got to miss him. I got to get back. Wow. I said to myself, well, I know what I got to do. What'd you do, Merv? Well, I got myself home in my home room, and I packed my bag. Okay. I went to the airport. The guy take me to the airport. Went to the airport. It was about a 16-hour flight to, from Abu Dhabi to New York. You left her then, there? When I, I left her there. I went to the bank, and I sent the money back That's good. to these guys. That's nice. And sent my money back. And, Gave him a notice that, uh, due to some excuse that I made, we weren't able to do this concert, and thanks for everything, and blah, blah, blah. And when I got back to New York, she called me after she got, you desert her, you left me, or whatever. She called me, whatever. You deserted me, you left me. I said, listen, let me tell you what you can do for me. You can kiss my ass. No, you did. You didn't tell her that. I, yeah, I quit her. Come on, Merv. You yeah. told her that? I told her that. They said to me, you quit managing an international superstar? I said, yes, I quit. My father used to tell me, nobody rides your back unless you bend over and let them on. And I said, I'm bending over and she's riding the shit on me and I quit. <laughs> what are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know yet, but I ain't going back there. What's the most memorable moment in your career? Well, I would have to say uh, the most memorable moment would be winning the Grammys. Okay. You know, because that's a highlight. Uh, I played for Mandela. That was another, I met him, was who, able to meet him. Who played for him when you, when you met Mandela? Who was the artist? Regina. Okay, Regina, okay. Yeah. I, uh, I traveled a lot with Roberta. I traveled more across the world, the world with Roberta than with Regina. What's the most important thing that you learned in the music business? I learned that it's a lonely place up there for an artist. Why is that? Because they're all alone. 
and it's very difficult. They have to, to me, I would recommend that they have good family ties. Okay. They're religious, spiritual, they believe in God. Okay. Because they need all of that. And that's not only with regard to artists, to me it's regard to those athletes that make a ton of money and don't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know? Buy friends, that's what they do. Yeah, they don't, they don't know. They've, they've, they've lived in poverty for so long. Okay. Overnight, they're very wealthy. They don't know what to do. And you have the guy waiting around the corner. And you know what he's got in his bag? What's he got? The drugs. So you saw drugs kill a lot he's of He's got the drugs. And the drugs put you in that other place. Euphoria, you're there. It takes away all of the pressure. For people who want to get into the music business, what advice would you give to them? Well, first of all, they have to be very passionate about it. Okay. They can't just think of it as a whim. Okay. They have to believe this is really what I want to do and I'm going to do it. Okay. They have to believe in themselves. They have to get away from the near seers, get away from that. Okay. Because there's going to be always somebody who's going to say, you can't do that. It's too complicated. It's too this. It's too that. But mainly you have to believe in yourself okay. and go upstream with it. No matter what, because the most, the strongest thing is if you believe in yourself, you go ahead and do it. And if you will find in history and anything of anybody who would become successful of stuff, they also believed in themselves. So once you believe in yourself, that's it. Don't be bothering what, oh, I want to know, what do you think? What do you think? No, no, it's what you think. And you have the passion for it and you believe in it, you do it. Well, you know about Stevie Wonder. Yes. Wrote about 3,000 songs. Wow. You haven't heard 3,000 songs from no. him. You may know about two dozen hits from the 3,000 he wrote. So what does that tell you? He never stopped writing. And I'm, I met him, it was very, we had a good conversation, and he would say to me, the song, he was very clever, genius, he said, the song is always there. You just have to find it. And I didn't understand what he meant until he came with, I just called to say I love you. Big hit. Everyday saying. Yeah. You know, and a lot of other thoughts. Apple don't fall far from the tree. R R Russell. They pick up the sayings. God don't like ugly. They pick up the sayings. They turn it into a song. It becomes a hit. But we'd say that phrase is right in front of you all of the time. The answer is written in the wind. You know, those type of things. They make great songs. And that's what Stevie used to talk to me about. And I would say, gee whiz, how come I can't think of something to pass on to one of my artists that's right there in front of my face? Yeah. But you just have to think hard and study hard. Or whatever. But there's somebody's got it. Somebody's got a saying or a phrase that is universal. Okay. That all they need to do is put it into a song and they're going to the bank. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard it from the man himself, the legend, Mervyn Dash. He's YFL, Young for Life. Thank you. All the best. My pleasure. <laughs>